Welcome back to Top Green to Me, a podcast about materials and sustainability. I'm Manali. And I'm Nasreen. How have you been, Manali? Great. Spring is almost here, and you know what that means. What? Time to do more gardening and planting. Oh, uh, yeah. You were going to grow me some loofahs with the compost you've been collecting. Oh, yeah. I'll definitely do that. But I do have to be careful in case there's a drought this year. I hope that there's going to be enough clean water left for drinking. I wonder what happens to make sure the water we get is safe to consume. That's a good question. I've got just the answers for you, because this is episode 21, Water, I Didn't Even Know Her. Nasreen, what's one of the first things you do every morning? I brush my teeth, flush my toilet, take a shower, and drink some nice cold water. Okay, that's like way more than the first thing you do, but fine, I'll accept it. But do you know what all of those things have in common? They cost money. Technically, yes, but the answer I was going for was that we need clean water to do them which comes to us from facilities called water treatment plants. Okay, but since the earth is covered in 70% water, why can't we just drink the water that falls out of the sky or is in the rivers and oceans? Well, first of all, ocean water is salty, so that would just be unpleasant and also pretty dehydrating. But freshwater rivers and rainwater are often not pure enough to be safe for drinking. Oh, right. I remember playing Oregon Trail, an old computer game set in the 1800s, whose sole purpose was to get to Oregon for some reason. And for some reason, my characters kept dying of cholera. That's probably because people did not have good water purification methods back in the Oregon Trail days. Also, do you really not know why people were trying to get to Oregon? Not as a fourth grader. So cholera is a disease that spreads through contaminated waters, and if a river gets contaminated with it, it's very unsafe to drink that water. And nowadays, in addition to bacteria and other things, you have pollutants from chemical plants and other industrial factories and facilities that release water into the river systems. Even more reason not to drink straight from the rivers. But what about the rain? Can't I just set some buckets out to collect water and drink that? Aside from it being like a really slow way to get water, rainwater can actually carry lots of bacteria, chemicals, and parasites that can make you sick. Wait, but it's just falling from the clouds. How does this happen? Dust, smoke, and particles from the air can contaminate rainwater before it lands. And also, if you leave your collection buckets out too long, insects or bacteria can also join. I see. I guess this is why water treatment facilities exist. Exactly. So let's discuss how this works. How is water treated to be safe? Well, typically in industrialized countries, water is collected in a reservoir. For the purposes of this conversation, we will mostly be discussing how this process works in the U.S. Since we are not well-versed in the methods used in different countries and every locality has different standards, infrastructure, and resources, we can only speak generally. 
So first, the water is collected from sources like mountain springs, rain, rivers, and sometimes from treated wastewater facilities as well. This water is stored in reservoirs, so there's a supply of water saved up and ready to be treated. The water treatment is generally a five-step process. These steps are coagulation, flocculation, sedimentation, and filtration and disinfection. We'll explain them in order. The first step is called coagulation. Water can have all sorts of minerals, dirt, or other things suspended in it. The purpose of coagulation is to add chemicals, called coagulants, to the water to make the suspended particles stick together and become too heavy, so eventually they fall to the bottom. These coagulants, and also flocculants, are usually positively charged. So when they're added, germs, dirt, etc. present in the water that are typically negatively charged is attracted to them and they stick together. That's because opposites attract. We all know that. Is this why we're friends? Because I'm awesome and you're the opposite? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I'm just joking. But these are your words, not mine, because you wrote this part of the script. (laughs) Fine. I'll just keep talking about water and ignore this very rude behavior. Common chemicals used during the coagulation process are iron and some other salts. These chemicals bind with the dirt and form larger particles. Step two is called flocculation. Here, water is mixed gently with the chemicals in it, which helps to make more and more particles bind together into what is called flocks. Once there are lots of flocks, the water is moved to the next step called sedimentation. This sedimentation step removes all of the large particles that were created in the previous two steps. Since these particles are heavier than the water, they fall to the bottom. The clear water from the top can then be taken out. Almost 90% of the solids and particles are actually removed from the water during these first three steps. The final steps are disinfection and filtration. These two processes can happen in either order. Often disinfection is done both before and after filtration. The water that is removed from the top of the sedimentation chamber still could contain small bacteria and parasites that are not negatively charged and not dirt particles. These have to be removed by adding chlorine to the water to disinfect it and remove the microscopic dangers. Once the water is chlorinated, it is then passed through several different filters of different sizes and different materials. We love materials on this podcast, so we'll tell you more about this. The water passes through filter beds of coal or sand to get rid of any impurities that didn't settle to the bottom during sedimentation. Because sand packs so tightly, there's not enough room for these particles to go through. You can use things like gravel to have larger pore sizes and even charcoal for even smaller pore sizes. These filters are also used to remove additional germs and bacteria. Activated carbon or activated charcoal can be used as a filter to remove bad odors as well. Right. After all this filtration, sometimes more disinfection happens by adding more chlorine. This last step of adding chlorine also helps to ensure that any germs living in the pipes between the water treatment plant and your tap are also killed. Fluoride can also be added. Since the 1960s, fluoride has been added to community water, and since then it's been shown to be the major factor responsible for the decline and prevalence and severity of tooth decay. And now all this clean and treated water goes and sits in storage until we need it. 
Yep, all those water towers that you see when driving on interstates all contain lots of clean water that goes into people's houses when they want to shower or cook. Or plant stuff like me. Yeah, also that. But we also rely on rainwater for a lot of our plants. Plants are okay with rainwater, unlike our bodies. Plants are so much sturdier and cooler than us. <laughs> Not a thing that I've ever <laughs> <laughs> Because we love materials on this podcast, we'll take a deeper dive into activated carbon because it's a super cool material. This is the stuff that's in our Brita filters, right? So what makes carbon active? So activated carbon is made from putting organic matter under high pressure and heat. And the leftover is just carbon, but the material has a really large network of many, many pores. So it just means that the carbon has been processed in a way to have lots of tiny pores and increase the surface area so more small things can get stuck in them. Right. So these small things are then filtered out. Basically how your water filters work. They can be non-Brita. No free ads. So making activated carbon is done by burning stuff, right? Essentially, yes. And it is often made from things like coconut husks. Another great way to keep agricultural waste from going to the landfills. Yes, definitely. And to make it very useful, too. So the coconut husks and other such waste are placed in very high heat without any oxygen present. You are left with char, and then the char is actually heated again at even higher temperatures, but this time with oxygen present. Seems confusing. Why add in oxygen later? The oxygen bonds to the carbon surface, and that is actually the active part. So oxygen is the one that absorbs to the pores and other germs and bacteria attach to the oxygen. I heard there's a Sri Lankan company called HayCarb that makes like 15% of the world's activated carbon all from coconut shells. That's awesome. No free ads, but shout out to our South Asian homies. Keep up the great work. So this whole time we've been talking about fresh water and how that is treated to go into homes. But what about the water that comes out of our homes? Well, like the water from our drains, what happens to that after we flush our toilets, for example? Good question. Every day we use water when we shower or run the washing machine, and all of this is wastewater that comes back out of our houses. And also from businesses and factories and runoff from the streets and sidewalks. Yeah, wastewater is everywhere, collecting in drains, sewers, and this water is a lot dirtier than the fresh water from rivers and lakes. Even this water is treated and is eventually returned back to homes. Yep, but it needs a lot more purification and treatment before it's safe for us to consume again. There are four steps in purifying wastewater. The first is screening. Before any serious water treatment, This wastewater is run through large screens where garbage, litter, leaves, and any other large objects that the water has picked up get caught on large filters. Then the water goes into facilities for treatment. The second step includes settling. Now, as strong women, we never recommend settling when it comes to your personal life. But for wastewater treatment, it's a good step. Yes, we like clean water. 
say thank you next to all that garbage. And so in the settling step, the wastewater goes into a large chamber and the heavier and more dense sludge or solids settle to the bottom while the light substances like oil float to the top. The floating substances are skimmed off the top and the sludge is removed from the bottom and collected. The water is then ready for the actual secondary treatment. In this third step, microbes eat the organic compounds in the water, such as sugars and fats that are still present. This makes the microbes grow bigger and bigger after consuming all that matter. And then these are a lot easier to remove, so they get taken out and added to the sludge. Why do we keep collecting sludge? It sounds gross. No, the sludge is actually very useful. It goes through a digestion process, and a lot of the organic matter in the sludge is converted into biogas, which is used to generate electricity. Oh, I'm sorry I judged the sludge book by its sludgy and poopy cover. You should be. The sludge that isn't turned into gas is also often usable as fertilizer, since it's mostly organic matter. Okay, my bad. So we've got good sludge. Has the water been all cleaned at this point? Almost. There is a fourth step of disinfection to kill off any bacteria, which is similar to the step taken with regular water treatment. Is it chlorine again? You got it. Chlorine is added to kill the bacteria, and then the water is released back to a river or ocean, and the cycle starts all over again with regular water treatment. So, Manali, you've mentioned disinfection and chemicals a couple of times. Yeah, it's actually really important to monitor the level of bacteria and other chemicals like phosphorus, nitrates, and also some metals like aluminum and copper, and of course, fluoride. It's alarming that all these things are in water at all. No, these things are actually all in the ground, and even in your body to begin with, so it's likely that some of it gets into the water but it's important to monitor how much and make sure that the levels are below acceptable amounts. Who decides the acceptable amounts? Well, in part us, of course, but by that I mean scientists. But also probably doctors. And policymakers. So how much aluminum is okay to be in my water? About 0.2 milligrams per liter. How about fluoride? 0.7 milligrams per liter. It used to be higher, but currently has been lowered to account for the fact that people are in contact with fluoride from other sources. Are you just making that up? No, these are really the acceptable amounts determined by the WHO or the World Health Organization. They have standards. It's typically health organizations such as the CDC and the EPA who have done lots of research that determine these amounts that are safe to consume. That seems like a much better way than you just throwing numbers out there. Rude. No faith in your fellow doctor and podcast host. We've got to be accurate, especially with all this controversy about fluoride. So what's like the danger limit for fluoride? The danger limit for causing severe skeletal fluorosis from fluoride is four milligrams per liter, which is more than four times higher than what is even allowed. What is allowed to be added to safe drinking water anyway. But fluoride is like good for you, right? Which is why they added it into the water in the first place. Yeah, there's historic and scientific evidence showing that there's a lot of benefits for using fluoride to prevent tooth decay. Should we be worried about it at all? 
Some studies have shown that exposure to high concentrations can lead to dental fluorosis, but this this is very rare. But wait, can't only kids get that disease? Yeah, exactly. According to the CDC, only children under the age of eight are at risk of this because their teeth are still developing. Adults cannot develop dental fluorosis. Nice. Another bullet dodged. Congrats. Anyway, there are lots of different chemicals and bacteria and even odor that are tested for in the water and lots of different ways to test for them. That's right. Lou, the water treatment plant manager from Atlanta, told us more about this. Stay tuned later this month for an interview with him from the Atlanta watershed. There are lists of acceptable ranges for all of the different chemicals and biologicals on the WHO website, and we have a link to that on our website as well. All water going to homes from any water treatment facilities have to go through rigorous monitoring, and even the tests have to conform to strict standards to ensure everyone has safe water. In the U.S., water treatment is regulated by state governments, and they all have to conform to the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act from 1974. Ugh, are you talking about policies again? Only because policies control what actually ends up happening. The Environmental Protection Agency has set standards for drinking water quality and ensures that states are abiding by these. You wouldn't have clean drinking water without these policies. Whatever. My body is like a plant. I can deal with non-clean water. I'm sturdy. <laughs> like, a tre- <laughs> <laughs> like a treatment plant or like a house plant? Because either way, no, you can't. Don't get our listeners sick with misinformation. Oh, what a buzzkill. Fine. Tell me about other policies. There is also the earlier Clean Water Act from 1972. This was when the EPA implemented pollution control programs, so the wastewater wasn't overly toxic when going back into the rivers and oceans. Well, that clearly didn't work. Remember that crazy stuff about DuPont from 2005? Yeah, I lived through that lawsuit, but I wasn't personally affected, thankfully, as as far as I know. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Honestly, we might all be riddled with polyfluorinated compounds because of all the cover-up that DuPont did. For our listeners who don't know, basically the chemical giant DuPont, the makers of Teflon and Tyvek, was dumping perfluorinated chemicals, or PFCs, into the waterways of Ohio. Yeah, and because of the chemistry of these materials... PFCs are highly bioaccumulating and cause severe illness to workers and animals and even people who drank this contaminated water. Right. And finally, in 2005, there was a major lawsuit after it was revealed that DuPont had knowingly poisoned the waters. They knew that PFCs and other perfluorinated compounds pollute the blood of people and animals, but they covered it up. And then they got fined for hundreds of millions of dollars. And hopefully that led to more stringent laws and limits. I'm pretty sure it did. But these laws and limits around the use of PFCs are still changing now. And manufacturing companies are looking for safer alternatives as they're forced to phase out many of these chemicals. We talked briefly about this in episode 11 on Teflon, about why it's so hard to find an alternative to this material. It's tricky. Some chemicals and chemistries are really good at their jobs, and it's hard to find alternatives. That's why we need toxicologists, biologists, and even other scientists to help study the effects of these 
chemicals on organisms to figure out safe limits where we can balance being able to make useful and helpful products while keeping people and animals safe. We talk more about the balance of science and policy in episode 17. So I hope that our listeners feel more informed about water and wastewater treatment after this episode. At least in the U.S. Yes, but if anyone has information about other countries that they would like to share with us, please feel free to reach out. We're happy to do another episode. And in the meantime, we will be back in a couple of weeks with an interview with Lou Puckett from the Atlanta Watershed to learn more about water treatment in action. This episode was edited and produced by Manali Banerjee and Nasreen Khan. Music is by Shang Young. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGTM Podcast, or you can email us at talkgreentomepodcast at gmail.com.